Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. For those that are joining us right now on live stream, my name is Rob, and I serve here as the lead pastor at Calvary Bible. And uh, today, uh, if you watched the podcast last night for our sermon prep, uh, you know that we were supposed to have Dr. Anthony Fusco with us today. And uh, Dr. Fusco is, uh, is sick. Uh, so uh, he, him, his wife, and his daughter were cases three, four, and five of COVID in Downingtown back in, in March and April. And so it looks like Dr. Fusco may be what we can describe as a long hauler. Um, so he developed a sinus infection, and it pretty much almost took him out. So continue to pray for my friend and your friend, Dr. Fusco. I know he's doing better. Um, but uh, just thinking about, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting in the sovereignty of God that um, you try your best to prepare and you try your best to be able to share what God has for you. And I, and I know, honestly, that um, we are called as ministers to be able to be ready at any moment to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. And so it's, it's, not, it's not outside of the par, par of the course for, uh, for me to have to pinch hit for somebody that we invited in. But I want to tell you today, this one, this message that I'm going to share with you is more of me just sharing uh, my heart with you, not just for you, but for me. Um, and, 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 I, and I think I want to dedicate it to Dr. Fusco because we're going to talk about stress and anxiety and worry, which is his thing. Um, and so uh, I want to I talk today from Philippians chapter 4, and then we're going to go a little bit into uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, so let's go to Philippians chapter 4. And uh, Julia, do I have like the slides for the whole chapter? For the most part? Okay, so we're going to read Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to go all the way through the whole chapter. This is the way the Apostle Paul closes his letter to the church at Philippi. So then, dearly my, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Yoda and I urge Shintaki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything but in everything. Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the, peace, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make with little, make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still. You did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. 
Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing in your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance, and I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an accepted sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in the glory of Jesus Christ. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me, use, uh, with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to the Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. So, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, one in five U.S. adults suffer from mental illness each year. 50% of all lifetime mental illnesses begin at the age of 14, and 75% of all lifetime mental illnesses begin at the age of 24. So these stats not only include clinical depression, anxiety disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorders, but it also has others. And one of the things that I feel is, is very taboo is talking about uh, mental illness inside of the congregation. And you know what? It would be taboo. It would be absolutely wrong for me to talk about mental illness if it wasn't something in the Word of God. But I want to submit to you today, Jonah was definitely bipolar. Elijah was suicidal. David had lust. Solomon, for being the wisest man, was dumb. How many wives do you need, dude? You know? So to say that these things aren't in Scripture is, and you may go, no, Pastor Rob, you know, we actually have had people leave our fellowship because I spent a couple of weeks talking about mental illness, and that's fine. God, God wanted them elsewhere, and, you know, God wanted us to move forward, and, I, and I'm completely okay with that. But I'm here to tell you that it affects all of us. From a clergy perspective, do you realize that last year was the year where most pastors killed themselves? That was last year. And that was even before COVID. It got further because of COVID, but 2019, we began to see this. We began to see pastors become atheists. And so this is something that we need to talk about, and we need to be okay with it. And, the, and I want to tell you this. If we're praying for a, for a younger demographic here at Calvary Bible Church, and we're praying for, 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 for more ethnicity, and we're praying for more diversity, do you realize as our congregation gets younger and our uh, diversity uh, you know, just accelerates more and more, we're going to be dealt with dealing with this more and more because the millennial, the generation right behind me and the one behind that are the most introverted anxious generations of all time. And so either we can say you go to church and you feel better or you recognize that we need to talk about this. Some of us in this very room are dealing with real mental issues and some of us are, are getting help for it and some of us don't even want to talk about it. And so I'm praying that God will speak to all of us. And the way I want to speak to you today is from what's, what's coming from my heart and what's coming in my life in order to share with you how, uh, how, how basically how screwed up I really am. Because I want you to understand how God works through everything. Our Savior says, don't worry about 
tomorrow. Man, that's tough. For me, it's tough to keep my temper in check. It's tough when I think about my, my thoughts and my emotions. And it's tough for all of us to realize that there's mental and emotional trauma that we haven't even experienced or dealt with yet. But understanding how to deal with these things is what causes us to have a better physical life, but more importantly, a better spiritual well-being. We're built in the image of God. There's a body, there's a soul, and there's a spirit. And if those things get out of whack, who knows what's going to happen? So I want to talk to you today about stress and anxiety and worry. And you and I, we live in a world that's just constantly just bombarded by stress. So what do we do? What do we do when stress enters our atmosphere? What do we do when that stress? Because you got to understand this. Stress is the external issue that happens. Something comes up. So short-term stress, such as, you know, missing a deadline or maybe like a near miss on the highway, it causes us hopefully to become more alert and vigilant. But what happens is when you have this long-term stress, such like a prolonged illness, so think about something like COVID in, in 2020, um, or unresolved conflict or ongoing trauma, this is not just something that attacks you physically and emotionally, it also attacks you spiritually. Because here's what happens, stress then turns into this internal anxiety. And so this is what anxiety actually, the de best definition I've ever heard of anxiety is this, defined by persistent, excessive worries that don't go away even when there is an absence of a stressor. So stress is the situation, anxiety is what lingers. And it lingers for a long time, and sometimes you get paranoid. And you get delusional. And you think everybody's against you. And that persistence, and that worry when it doesn't go away, it causes long-term stress that have far-reaching effects, not only on what's going on right now, but what happens in your health in the future. And then not only that, it, it wrecks everybody else around you. And so Paul, as he's in prison, remember, he's in prison. He writes this letter and he closes up by talking about some things that were going on inside of a church. And so I want to give you the outline of Philippians chapter 4, just in case, so I don't forget to give it to you. First, in, in verse 1, he talks about, and Julie, you can just go through these slides, okay? So the first one is joy and friendship, verse 1. Joy and unity, verses 2 and 3. Joy in God's peace, verses 4 through 9. Joy in financial contentment, verses 10 to 13. Joy in provision, verses 14 to 20. And then he concludes and says a few nice things to everybody in verses 21 to 23. And so I want to go through what he, what he actually says, and then we may take a look a little bit if we have time into 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So here's what's going on. So Paul's, Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's writing it to the church at Philippi, which is in a, in a region called Macedonia. 
if you know anything about the missionary journeys of Paul, Macedonia is where Paul finally lands to, see, to do some of his greatest work. He's been spending his, a lot of time trying to go eastward, and while he's in a town called Bithynia, he continues to try to plow along eastward, and God gives him a vision and a dream to basically say, you're not going in the right direction, and there's, some, there's this, this man from Macedonia in the dream that says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul takes that from a sign of God, and the next day they travel to Macedonia, and they land in Macedonia, and one of the chief cities in Macedonia is a place called Philippi. And in Philippi, he meets certain people that will become the, the, the nucleus of this church plant, one of them being Lydia, who sold purple cloth, and, and so on. And so there was a Philippian jailer who jailed them, and then there was earthquake, they were let go, he was going to get killed, and, and, and so he asked Paul and Silas, what do I do to be saved? These are, this is the stories that we've heard in Sunday school, this is that church. And so he writes this church, and he tells them how much he loves them. He tells them how much he misses them. He calls them brothers and sisters. He calls them that they are the source of his joy. He talks about them being a crown, which basically he understands that when he gets to heaven, there's going to be a reward that God is going to give him, and that he'll give it right back to the Savior for this church in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, church in Philippi. Paul has done a good work here. And so he writes them, and he's talked about knowing Christ He's talked about reaching forward to God's goal. He's talked about Christian humility. He's talked about Christ. He's spoken about Christ's humility and exaltation. Uh, he's spoken about that the fact that they are the lights of the world. He mentions Timothy. He mentions Epaphroditus. He talks about living in Christ. And so if you're in this church and you're reading this letter that you just received from the Apostle Paul, there's a lot of good stuff in there, right? Enough to keep your attention, for sure. And then all of a sudden, in verse 2, I can just imagine these two ladies, Yoda and Syntyche, and I usually call them Odor and Stinky. It's just easier to say. There's these two ladies, and like they're, and if you know anything about any kind of Christian culture, especially churches that have pews like we do, if people don't get along, one person sits there and the other person sits where? No, probably in the classroom outside, away, right? Or in the car, right? Or not, didn't even come to church. So, there, so you're, you're listening to this letter from the Apostle Paul. You miss the Apostle Paul. You, you know, he's, he's a rock star to you. And so you're listening, and he's like, man, this is great stuff. This is awesome. Then all of a sudden he goes, and so Yodis and Syntyche. Like, imagine all of a sudden in the middle of we're reading a letter from one of our missionaries, and they mention you and someone else because you guys have beef with each other, and it's noticeable. So their ears go up, obviously. And so, and so then Paul just makes sure, yes, in case you didn't hear right, yes, I also ask you, true partner, so he's talking to the person that he writes the letter to, so probably one of the pastors or the elder, and also Clement, who's probably an also a pastor uh, and an elder, and he, and, he, and he commends them first. He says, Yodas and Syntyche, they both, they contended for the faith. They contended for the gospel. These are good ladies. These are not bad ladies. Bad people argue. Did you know that? I mean, good people argue. Do you know that? It's okay. Like, mom and dad argue. doesn't mean kids that they're going to break up. You know what I'm saying? A good marriage has arguments. A good relationship has arguments. If your relationship has no arguments, I don't know if you're drugged or what it is, but like you haven't spent enough time with each other then. Arguments happen. And these good ladies who contended for the faith, they had an argument. They had a disagreement to the point that everybody knew about it. And so Paul asks the people in the church to help them settle this. Man, that's, a, that's something like for American Christianity doesn't make any sense at all. It's actually kind of scary, right? You want us to get these two in a room and help them work it out? Nah, we'll just watch them sit across the other side of the room and, you know, 
make comments. It's the responsibility of us as a church to live in community to the point that we hold each other accountable. So that, that's, that's me, that's you, that's everybody. But it's done in a way that is for not only the unity of the church and the holiness of God, but also for the restoration of the relationship. Guys, get these two people together. It's, so what Paul is saying is, it's really weird. So he talks about joy, he's talking about friendship, and now he's talking about unity. He said, he's making it sound like it's really weird for two ladies who've done so much for the gospel to not be talking. Right? That's weird. That's not normal. Even for us, like we see that all the time. I'm telling you, we see it from the stage. We see it from the back of the room. We see it in fellowship. We see it all the time. Everyone acts like they're all churchy when they're here, when there's big beef going on. And he says, it shouldn't be that way. Help them. Help them get it right. So then he talks about why. Why is it important to have, have uh, joy in friendship and have joy in unity? And that comes to verse 4 to 9. He says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not, don't worry about anything but every, and everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So here's something that, uh, that I, I, want, I want you to realize. There, there really is, and, and you, there is no escape for trouble in our life. Right? So think about all the people that you know that are just like these stellar Christians. At the top of that list, hopefully, or somewhere, I mean, at least your top three to five, the Apostle Paul should be up there. Right? If anybody didn't need drama in their life, it was Paul. But Paul had drama throughout his entire life. Shipwrecked. Death sentences. Hit men after him. Religious leaders coming after him, being stoned. The loss of friendships. The entire change of his culture from being a Jewish one to being a, a Christian one. It's a lot to deal with. Christ himself said this, that in this world we will experience what? Tribulation, and we're going to experience, in John 16, 33, we'll experience hardship. And so what he didn't follow that statement was this. Get over it, or ignore it, figure it out on your own. You know that's one of the worst things in the world to tell somebody who's going through something is to get over it? And sometimes because we don't, we don't understand, or we don't agree, or we think, like when someone mentions, mentions a, a mental disorder or something that's, that's strenuous in their life, sometimes we'll say it, get over it. You get over it. Let's see if you can, you can't. Whatever you're going through, you can't get over it without the grace of God, so don't tell us to get over it. We're not supposed to get over it. We're supposed to have God see us through it. And we make that mistake all the time. Get over it. Ignore it. Figure it out on your own. God never told you to figure anything out on your own. When you figure stuff out on your own, that's when you mess up. So instead, he tells his followers what? To take heart because of tribulation and hardship. Be encouraged, be hopeful, because why? why? Why can we have victory even in the midst of all of the mental and stressful and, and worrisome and anxious thing in our life? Why can we have victory? Because Jesus says he's overcome every obstacle. Man, when we say things like, you know, we're, we're a fighter and we'll get through this. I, I don't know. 
I'll tell you this, from my own personal experience, right now I'm up to about four different um, doses of like a thousand vitamins a day because I'm so worried about COVID. But do you know if God wants me to get COVID, I'm going to get COVID? You know that, right? If God wants you to go through something, he's, he's going to let you go through it. But the point of what God is trying to do is to help you to see how you can get through it. So, and why? Because he's been through it and he's, he's, had develop, and he's gotten the victory over, over it. So if we're honest with ourselves, think about this. Learning to overcome stuff like stress and worry and anxiety is really easier than, than, than said than done. Like it's in the textbook on how to fix it, but it never happens. The study of what happens to us mentally has become, I mean, think about it. It's more prevalent than it ever has been today. And so when you think about in terms of what the Bible is trying to say about what it means to overcome stress and anxiety, Paul says this. He says, rejoice. He says the first things that that lets you know whether you are whether your baseline or your identity is in Jesus Christ is whether or not you're able to rejoice or not if there is an absence of joy in your life there's the absence of close fellowship with God and you may try to manufacture it you may just want to say it's your personality not to be not to be effervescent you may want to say, well, people just look joyful and they're not. But when you, you know whether you're joyful or not. And other people, especially those of us of the household of faith, because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we know when one of our brothers and sisters is not experiencing joy. And Paul, from prison, knew that these ladies were not experiencing joy. But he tells them in kind of like a command, rejoice. And in case you didn't hear me, I said it again, rejoice. How does that happen? So here's the thing. You know, right? You know joy isn't some switch you just turn on, right? You know that, right? You don't just, you can't just, you can't just like yell at somebody, rejoice! Oh, all right. Boop. No, that's not what happens, right? What, what happens there? Here's what he says. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. Here is how joy is built. You first start out by having grace for everybody. Why? Because God's near. So that either can mean that theologians have wrote both down. It either means because Jesus, they believe Jesus Christ was coming back, right? So near in the time frame or the fact because they're saved, God's always near. So because God is in your presence or God is in your timeline, we should be gracious with people because of that. Why do you have grace for people? Because God's near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything. Okay, I love that. That first phrase, if you put that on a t-shirt by itself or a bumper, don't worry about anything. Like, I mean, honestly, don't worry. Be happy. Come on, that's not, that's a great little song, but that doesn't happen all day, right? Come on. Yeah, it may have a nice little ditty for you, like Pharrell with the song Happy, but it's not, I mean, what does it last? Through through the, the, the opening of Minions and then it's done, right? Like, then it's over. And then you're upset again. So what does it mean to, don't, to, to not to worry? And then so he builds it up in everything. Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Okay, so here's where worry can be put in check. So if we're not supposed to worry about anything, we should be praying for everything. You see how he makes that distinction? If you don't want to worry about anything, pray about everything. Okay? Through prayer 
and through petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So here's, this is the attitude in which we pray. Obviously, the mode is that we should be praying consistently without ceasing, the Bible says, right? So when we pray, there has to be this, this way that we do it. And the way that we're supposed to talk to God is not only that there is this communication with God, but when we communicate and we're going to ask something of God, there has to be this major aspect of us thanking God first. If we're going to ask of God, we better be thanking God. And so this mindset that you rehearse what God has done for you to the point that not only it's just, oh, yeah, I remember that happened, but that you thank God that whatever happened did, then that gives you the right mindset to ask and make a request and be known to God. And here's what God does. As you're asking, as you're asking with thanksgiving, as you're communicating with God, not only does the worry come down, here's why. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So how does that play out in my life? I wish I can give you a better story. But in my life, if I start to worry and I start to get anxious, it's really hard for me to control it. And I start going down rabbit trails in my head and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. But there has to come a point, and I'm glad that it does, that I, I just start talking to God. And in that talking to God, something happens. Before I'm able to petition God for anything, even sometimes before I'm able to thank God, God reveals to me who I am. And there's usually amount of, a, a huge amount of repentance that happens first before I'm ever to ask God anything. Because I think when going to God with a clear heart isn't because you haven't done anything wrong. Going to God with a clear conscience comes from God once you let God know, yes, I agree with you about what you've shown me about myself. I am a wicked, rotten sinner. You have saved me. I have broken fellowship. I therefore change my mind and my heart and my actions towards what I've done. And I recognize who you are and I want to come back to you. That's what starts the process of us being able to have thanksgiving because it's really hypocritical to thank God until you recognize you've done something wrong against God. All of us want the blessing. All of us want the relationship, but none of us want the accountability. So this peace happens when you've cleared the deck of hiding things from God, when you've talked to God about, what, about who you are, when you start actually having this mental list about people you have, to, you have to either apologize to or make sure everything's okay because when you go nuts, they start going nuts because they experience it with you. It's not just you. What does the peace of God do? Not only is it inexplainable or, or, or beyond our understanding, I love what the end of the verse says, it'll guard your heart and your mind. See, here's the battle. This is where the rubber meets the road. Here's where all of our insecurities and all of our character defects and all of, our, all of, all of the, the chemical imbalances, everything that we have, here's what it comes down to. There's something going on in our minds and our hearts which also affects our body. So the peace of God, when that's able to become your baseline, 
It causes you to be able to have the peace of God, not you. I love, this verse is not saying guard your heart. It says this, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It is the privilege of a believer to be able to understand and to hopefully be able to exercise control of our hearts and our minds in order to do the right thing, but sometimes we don't. And so therefore, it is way more advantageous, downright biblical, for us to have the peace of God guard our, heart, our hearts and our minds instead of us. Because we stink at it. Because if somebody tells me to guard my heart and guard my mind, what if I don't want to do something right? What if I want to do something wrong? I'm not going to guard my heart and mind. I'm going to do what I want. And then I'll try to get repentance because that's the way we act, right? Hey, we always get repentance, and so we do what we want. But if the peace of God is guarding your hearts and your minds, then you'll see a change. So verse 80 says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, this is another part of God's peace. Whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there be anything of moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Have you ever noticed when you're in the middle of an anxiety attack or worry or a season of being controlled more about your, uh, your carnality, do you ever realize that the last things you think of are things that are just and honorable and true and pure? They'll be there if that's on your agenda for the day, but if it's not, it's not, right? I mean, it's not there. You're thinking about what you want and what you want to do. So for the Apostle Paul, it may have been to try to you know, break out of prison, it could have been to, to punch a guard. Who knows what it was? You know what yours is, and I know what mine is. But whenever we have the peace of God guarding our hearts and our minds, the things that, so what we're supposed to do is not just take, like, let's say there's this bottle of water, it has dirty water in it, right? Okay? Uh, Greg calls it skookle punch, right? If we take it from the, the faucets, right? That we're going to die if we drink the faucet water here. So if, if you realize that this thing is toxic for you, is that because of like the goose poop or what is it? Because it just seems thick, right? It's just, yeah. So like if, if we notice that's going to bother us, what do we do? Well, we should first dump the old water, the dirty water out, right? And then do is that, all right, cool. My life's better now because I got rid of the dirty water. What are you supposed to do after you dump out the dirty stuff in your life? What are you supposed to do? Fill it with good stuff, right? Get that nice Perrier. Do what you got to do, right? But you get rid of the old and you put new stuff. This is what the Bible is telling us. It's not just that we don't think on things that are bad. We have to start thinking things that are good and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And if there's anything of not just morality but moral excellence, things that don't even look like that, that, that are that the appearance of evil. And I know in my own life, not just because of my upbringing, not just because of the, the foul mouth that I, that, that I have because before, before I was uh, a Christian and just growing up and all that stuff, I know sometimes I say things off color. I say things that are, that are completely things that somebody should not say. And as soon as I catch myself, I realize, why the heck did I go down that path? Because I'm not thinking on things that are true. I'm not thinking on things that are pure. Uh, the peace of God is not controlling my life at that point. And so I say some really stupid things. 
You ever been there? If it's just me, that's fine. That's cool. I mean, it's just us and everybody on the internet then, right? But the problem is when we, when we do those things, if, if, it's not, if it's a moment of that, that's one thing. But if it becomes a season of that, we're going down this hole that makes it harder to get out of. That's why the Bible says it's not just about being moral, it's being morally excellent. And it, but how does all that happen? If there's anything praiseworthy, if there's anything that you can praise God about, you should do that. And you should do well on those things. This is what keeps the peace of God controlling your hearts and your minds. Do, and this is what Paul says. Do what you have learned and received and heard of me and seen in me, and the peace of God will be with you. Now, sometimes I think we, we feel that Paul, because he's like this super missionary or this super Christian, when he says things like, you know, repeat after me or do after me, it's like, there's no way. We're not Paul. All Paul is saying is this. Look at what I've been through. Look at what my life was. Look at what my life is now. Look where I was and where I am. And if you see anything that, that God has done in my life, do that too. Because he says it this way. Follow me because I follow who? Christ. Okay? So he doesn't say follow me. He says follow me because I follow Christ. And so here's... so. Uh, he starts to bring some stuff up in verse 10. So now we're going to talk about the joy in financial contentment. I know you guys know this. One of the reasons why we have so much stress and anxiety and worry in our life is because we never either think we have enough or we never think, or we think somebody else has more than we do or whatever it is, we're never content, right? So let's talk to the guy who's in prison and says he's content to find out how we, how we fix that. Because that is one of the biggest things that control my life, and it may be yours, is that we just, we, just, we just want more stuff. All right, so let's look what he says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. So here's what Paul brings up. So now remember, he's a missionary, right? So he, he, he lives on missionary support, basically. And so the churches, even when he was in prison, just like, you know, you can send, like if we have a relative or a friend in prison, you can send them something for their account so that they can buy, you know, candy or hopefully not cigarettes. But, oh, oh you know, you've, you've seen movies. You know how this works, right? The same thing is true back then in the first century in house arrest. You could send people stuff. But crazy part is, like, usually sometimes they would die because people wouldn't send them stuff. So it wasn't like they were providing for the basic needs sometimes. Paul needed this stuff in order to survive, right? Like, it wasn't, it wasn't guaranteed the Roman government was going to feed him every day, okay? So, they, people would send stuff. The churches would send stuff. And the way they would send it is they didn't send it, like, to a mission agency, and they usually sent it by a carrier. And so this, this time, it's a, a few guys have come and visited Paul. One of the guys' name is Epaphroditus. And so he says, I'm really happy. It, he was joyful because something came for him from them. And he goes, he says this, you were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it, okay? So there, are, there were times in the first century, just like, you know, sometimes in crunch time at a church, sometimes, you know, because of the budget being tight or money, did, whatever it is, sometimes if we have to miss paying a missionary for a month, you know, that's a really hard thing for a church to do. But let's look on the other side. What about the missionary who just lost that support for the month, right? And so Paul was saying, hey, I'm really excited that you guys gave to me. I know you wanted to before, but some, you lacked the opportunity, either because of, of, of uh, persecution or because of lack of finances or whatever it is. They weren't giving regularly like, like they were before. So for Paul to see this, this gift to come in, it was a big deal. Not, not the money, but like, yes. Things are going better at that church that they're able to do this, okay? So he's rejoicing because God seems to be doing better in their midst, 
okay? And so then he says this, and I don't say this out of need. So he wants to, that wasn't some like passive aggressive way of saying it's about time you sent the money. That's not what he was doing. He literally says, I'm not saying this out of need. And then this is where he wants to teach us about contentment. Remember, he says, listen to what I do. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. So when we look at that word contentment, that word contentment is actually where we get the word for baseline from. Or balanced. That we are, it's more than okay. It's, that, it's more like completion. Okay? Like a, like a balance sheet working out. Okay? That's what contentment is like. And so he says this, and whatever circumstances I find myself. So think about that. Put that in a very, very real sense. If contentment means that the balance sheet adds up, what if things aren't going right? Then the balance sheet isn't adding up. How do you make a balance sheet add up when things aren't going right? So this is what he says he does. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. So if there's, so this, remember, this, again, you always remember, this guy's in prison saying this stuff, right? Sometimes I have plenty, sometimes I don't have a lot. But in the circumstances, I've learned what the secret of being content, of having that right baseline is this. Whether well-fed or hungry, or in abundance or in need, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. So how does Paul have the spiritual gumption or even the practical gumption to learn how to be content whether he has a lot or he has a little? Is by him recognizing that his strength and provision comes from God, not from the church of Philippi. God may use the church of Philippi, but that's not the one who provides for him. God provides for him. And it's, it's, it's good for us to know that, that God provides for you. Not your job, not your business, not your talent, not your health. God uses those things, but God is the one that provides for you. So when you give to God, like when this church gave to Paul, they in very essence realized they were giving to God for God to use for Paul. They didn't, realize, they didn't think that they were giving money to Paul. Here's the problem. Whenever we start thinking that we give to the church or that we give to that, we miss the point, because what happens is then you start thinking you're the one that bankrolls everything. And then God has to put you on your back and get you out of work for six months to realize they're still going. You, want, you know, it's not, you don't give to an organization, you give to God, and God uses it. If you can go higher than realizing that you're not, you're not as, you are not as successful as you think you are. It all comes from God. And so Paul says that, he goes, hey, listen, do what I do because I follow God. It's not because I'm, I'm this great super missionary. By the way, I'm in prison, so maybe I'm not the guy to follow. You know? But this is where I am. And this is the, this, the, the contentment that I, that I can be in because of that. Still, he goes, even though Christ strengthens me, he goes, still, you did well by partnering me in, this, in my hardship. And he tells him, hey, that was a good job you did. Then he explains a little bit further. Now we're going to go to verse uh, 14 to 20. Okay, this is Christ's provision. This is where they get it. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for me, for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. I have received everything in full, and I have abundance. I'm fully supplied. Here's what he says. Guys, this is... This is 
This is who you are, church at Philippi. Philippians, this is who you are. You give. You guys gave to him when no one else did. You guys kept, uh, kept honoring God by giving even when no one else did. And he goes, and, and so that's what he says, when you guys weren't able to give, I didn't get upset. I knew that something was up. So instead of getting upset, I didn't get the gift. What did Paul do? He went to prayer for this church because something was going on. They weren't able to fulfill what they normally could do. You know what that teaches me about stress, worry, and anxiety? Sometimes it's better for me to spend my time praying for other people. Not neglecting myself, but recognizing, man, if I'm going through this, there are other people going through this. I'm not the only one that's stressed. I'm not the only one that's anxious. I'm not the only one that has worry. I am not the only. I, I gave you the stats. It's not just me. It's not, it, there's a lot of people going through this. One in five? That's a lot of people to pray for. And that redirection of our thoughts and our prayers is what caused Paul to be able to say, hey, I started praying. That's why I'm so happy that you're able to give, not because I received something, but because, man, that means God's working again. That whatever was going on, God's been able to bless. And he goes, I have everything in full. I'm in abundance. I'm fully supplied. This is the guy in prison, guys. I'm fully supplied. I'm stocked up. I have whatever I need. I, re um, I remember right around uh, March or April of last year. Remember the first run on toilet paper? Still don't understand what happened with that, right? And I remember like the first run on toilet paper, everybody, it was toilet paper and hand sanitizer, right? And I remember um, thinking like, so, so, so we at church here, like we did everything not only to keep our, our pantry full through the benevolence fund to help people with, with, with food, but, but I stocked up like all the time on sanitizer and toilet paper, not knowing whether or not we were gonna be able to get some. And this verse just, I always chuckle every time I see this, I'm fully supplied. We got toilet paper. You know? I want you to think about that. It's yes, we got toilet paper. Do you realize how much toilet paper God has given you in your life? You really, you think that things are going so bad, you're like, yo, I got those basics that I, that I man, that's awesome. You know what's funny? Because you only think people are crazy when they want toilet paper unless you need what? Then you're in line with the rest of them at Wegmans. One pack, are you kidding me? Right? So contentment causes you to think about other people. And man, when you're able to recognize that, the Bible says you have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul tells them to this. It's not just that, you, that I'm supplied. If he supplied me, he's going to supply you. So look at my toilet paper and recognize you're going to have toilet paper. Like, that's what he's saying. Like, look, look at other people, not only to see how God is working so you can pray for them, but how God is blessing. And don't get jealous when you look at other people. Realize, if God is supplying for them, he will supply for me. I shared this on a, on a, on a Wednesday morning podcast with you guys about the fact of the matter is that we don't have to worry about where our stuff comes from. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. They never worry about it. You don't see a flower toiling and spinning trying to get dressed. It just happens, right? You know, I mean, birds just get, they get food from like, I don't know, they're like, whoa, snake down there. Ah, done. Got it. Who gave him that? God. And if God takes care of birds and flowers, how much will he take care of those that are not only created in his image, but those that he's called to himself for salvation? 
And so he says, when you can pivot for not only praying for other people, but when you look at what other people have, that you're not trying to keep up with the Joneses, but that you recognize God will supply for me like he supplies for the Joneses, then that's when things happen. Remember, he is in prison saying these things. At the end, and then we're going to go into First, uh, Second Corinthians real quickly. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me also send you greetings. So those that are with Paul. So this is a really kind of a... A weird situation. House arrest doesn't always mean you're by yourself in prison. It also means that people could live adjunct to you or near you and they can come visit you. Because like I said, sometimes that's the only way you're going to survive. They're not, they, they don't have like the, they may not have like the infirmary and stuff like that in this, in this Roman system. Okay. So people come and they take care of you. But he also says this, all the saints send you greetings. And then this is what he says, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So the history of the Apostle Paul is that he spent a lot of time and a lot of his last missionary journeys trying to get to Rome. Okay, It's what he wanted to do. He felt like it was his calling to go to Rome, the seat of the Roman Empire, where crazy Emperor Nero was himself. That's where he wanted to go. And, and, and his followers are like, that's crazy. You could do so much here. No, Paul, you don't have to preach in public. Dude, chill. Even the Roman citizens, the Roman guards were like, yeah, we beat you up, but we're letting you go. What do you? And he goes, no, I'm a Roman citizen. You weren't supposed to touch me. I'm appealing to Caesar. He literally used his citizenship to get the gospel advanced. He could have been let go, but he went in order to be able to appeal and keep going up the appellate process so that one day he'd be in, in front of Caesar. To me, that's crazy, right? Obviously, God had to call him specifically for that because that's nuts, right? He could have left, set on the ground, but he's like, no, nah, I got to go see Caesar. He winds up getting uh, beheaded by Caesar, by the way, okay? So he knows that this is his goal. And he says something. He goes, hey, so on this journey between, with, with fear and anxiety and worry, and also understanding contentment, in the end of all of it, this is what I say. Those that belong to the household of the very guy who's going to wind up killing me, that I've spent my life trying to get to this point in Rome, they say hello. Which means Paul had people from Caesar's, either his, his staff or his family or in close proximity, who came to know Jesus as a direct result of Paul's ministry in jail. That is insane. That's what God did. God used his peace that passes all understanding to allow Paul to work through the trial that he was going through. Remember, he was still arrested in order for him to still bring glory to God in the midst of a storm. All right? So now let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm just going to read this to close out, basically. Boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelation from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard unexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast this in person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. 
For I want to boast, and I wouldn't be a fool, but I would be by telling, be telling the truth. But I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears in me, especially because of the extraordinary re uh, revelations. Therefore, so I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he would leave me, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church. It's not the first time he's written them, and they wrote back to him, and he wrote back to them again. And he's talking about what it means to have grace that is sufficient. So he words it like this. He goes, hey, I don't, want, I don't want to brag. I really don't. But I know a guy that went to the third heaven. And so most scholars believe he's talking about himself. And he's talking about that time when he was stoned to death, the Bible says. Okay? And it looks like in this passage from him being dead on the floor that he actually got to see some stuff that was going on in heaven. Here's what I want to tell you right now. Because some of us, we have this ego trip that we want to say, oh, I had that happen to me too. It was probably bad pizza, okay? This is the Apostle Paul. He is taught directly by Jesus Christ. There were only 12 and 13 guys like them. This, this does not happen on a normal basis. We have the word of God that we read because this is our final authority for faith and practice, okay? This is not for you to go, hey, that happened to me. No, or want it to happen to you. It did not happen to you, okay? It happened to him. Okay, and this is what he said. And you want to know why I say all that? I'm not being snarky. I'm saying that because this is what I'll read towards the end what he does with all this. He goes, I was in heaven. I saw paradise. I saw words that I can't even speak. Express it, explain it to us, Paul. It's inexplainable. Right? I just can't. I don't know. You know, and he goes, I don't know if I was dead. I don't know what's going on. But I'm, I want to boast about this. But this is what I want to talk about. He goes, I want to tell you. I want, to, I want to tell you what God did. God gave me this vision of what heaven was like, and then he did something to calm me down. He sent me a thorn in the flesh. So uh, most people believe that this thorn in the flesh was this eye uh, ailment that Paul had, that he had degenerative macular disorder. He was going blind. There's one time in the Word of God that he says, see how big I wrote my name, and most people believe he usually had a scribe write his messages for him. This time, because his eye was going, he goes, P A U. He wanted to write it for himself. And so because he was blind, he had to get really close. You remember when you forget your glasses and you have that Zoom call at work and you're like, you know, that's, that's what it was like. And so he, it, wasn't, it wasn't getting better, it was getting worse. And so uh, God, he literally said, I, I really think, because it happened after this, this, uh, this stoning, obviously, medically, probably because of the stoning, right? He went, he's going blind, right? But after this, this big uh, event of seeing heaven and seeing all the wonders, he goes, here's how God baselined me back out. 
See, a lot of us, we have these really highs in our life, then we have these really lows in our life. And God wants us to have this. I want, he wants us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on a daily basis. Not have had these spiritual highs and these spiritual lows. He wants us to have our baseline in Jesus. And so he says, here's how the baseline happened. He sent this, this eye disease in order to calm me down so I don't boast about what I saw. So that when I talk about Jesus, I don't talk about the fact that he let me see heaven. When I talk about Jesus, I talk about the fact that he lets me live and lets me serve even though I'm starting not to see. My grace, he goes, and, he, and, and so Paul, Paul opens it up. He goes, yo, it wasn't like I was some super Christian and I was like, wow, Jesus chose me to have this. No, he said, I pleaded to God three times, please take this away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. He goes, here's how you're going to know how powerful I am, Paul. I'm going to work through this weakness that you have. I'm going to give you a degenerative disease, and then I'm going to work through it so you realize it's me, not you, who's in charge. So Paul got it, and he says this, I'll gladly boast all the more, not about my vision of heaven, because that gives you some sort of status symbol above other people. Not everybody's going to have that. And so he could say, hey, I'm the one that saw heaven, not you. Right? He could have been that guy. And some of us, we are that guy. But he goes, no, I'm going to boast in the fact that I'm going blind, but that, that Christ is, Christ's power resides in me. So here's what he goes. I'll take pleasure in being weak. I'll take pleasure in people dissing me. I'll take pleasure in the hard times. I'll take pleasure in being persecuted. I'll take pleasure when things get difficult and awkward. Why? For the sake of Christ, I'll do these things because whenever I'm weak and these things are abundant, that's when Christ does his best work. So when Paul writes about his difficulties and despair in 2 Corinthians, he expresses the need for the members of the body to come alongside him, okay? He recognized, so in, in, in chapter 1, verse 11, he talks about that their combined prayers are what makes things work. So we have in our church, we have this terrible theology about what illness actually is. In some parts of the country, for, I know for a fact that when a pastor gets sick or when a pastor gets old, they put him out to pasture. They put him on a sabbatical and they never invite him back. I've seen it happen. I've seen some places where, where members are, if they, if, they, if they can't have children, they, that they'll say, hey, what did you do? It's sort of like, really? What did you do to, to talk like that? Like, honestly, what's going on inside of you? Somebody gets sick and instead of praying, we're like, oh, I wonder. And so how about this? When, like, let's say we had that Yodas and Syntyche situation and somebody's mad at each other and one of those two people gets sick and get COVID. Yeah, it serves them right. Don't tell me you never thought that way about somebody because you have. Are you developing a sense of spiritual strength and fortitude based on the fact that Christ can work through your, stra your stress, your anxiety, and your worry? That's my question for you. Are you developing a type of life that in your weaknesses and hardships and difficult circumstances, Christ works mightily?